Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 8, please. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. I'm going to read the first eight verses. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were gathered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the, the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Thank you, Daniel. I asked Daniel to read that because I'd left my glasses back there and I'd have no hope. Great to have all these shoe boxes here this morning. And uh, 70 days to Christmas. How about that? Only 70 days. I see lots of joyful faces and I see some going, oh, you're kidding. <laughs> Um, Christmas, the time when we uh, obviously focus in on the, the wonderful gift of God's Son given for us, Jesus, a baby born. There was another baby born yesterday morning, very early yesterday morning, and uh, Jared and Tiff welcome Mal- Malachi. And so, granddaddy again. And uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're all doing well, Jared included. Um, I received this just this morning and this is uh, the newsletter from Phil and Carol Short and uh, they're heading back to Africa um, on the 28th of October. So I encourage you to be praying for them just as they, uh, they go back for, I think it's around five months, six months this time. Um, and uh, yeah, praying for them as they get their last details in hand before they they head off um, but just to remind you that it's uh, it's 48 years that they have been missionaries to the uh, Fulani people in Niger um, that's been their goal and uh, just to, to at their age um, Phil's now into his 70s um, and still going back to the people in, uh, in Niger. That's been their goal. What are your goals? Thinking about goals this morning, um, do you have any major goals for your life that you want to achieve? Have you actually sat down and considered perhaps where you want to be in five years' time, maybe ten? Um, for some of you, you probably won't be here.
Sorry. <laughs> I'm not actually. You'll be so glad that you're not here. Um, I think most of us just can't wait to, to leave planet Earth and go home to glory. Um, often I'm asked from leaders of other churches or leaders or people from other Christian organisations and we've had this conversation, this chat about the church and, and moving into these wonderful facilities and so forth and often I'm asked, so what's your vision now? What's, what's the plan from here on? What are your goals? What are you looking forward to? What's the next big plan? And mostly I feel rather awkward as I admit that I don't have a plan and almost feel guilty. When I went through Bible college, I didn't know what God wanted for me at the end of Bible college. All I knew was that God had called me to go to college and then to trust him into the future and I'm still open to wherever God might have me be. In her book, God's Power in Me, Margaret Feenberg speaks to kids and she says this, Before you were born, you were given a destiny. However, she then says this, The word destiny comes from the Latin root meaning to make firm or establish. And so... If it's to make firm and make establish, she says, then says this, in other words, you have a God-given destination that's already prepared for you. And if you take note of that, that definition for destination, it's not about a place, it's not about a position, it's not about something that you can actually get to yourself necessarily. It's all about being a life transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit of being like Christ. That's your destiny. That's your destination, to be like Christ. And that should be your goal, to be established, to be firmly rooted in Christ and to be like Christ. Now, as we move from chapter 7 to chapter 8 in the book of Acts, we've read of Stephen, whose face lit up like an angel, and as he died, he died for Jesus, he asked that his killers would be forgiven, just like Jesus, firmly established in Christ but radiating his glory and character, would you forgive them their sin? The religious leaders of the day, however, had their Satan-ordained goals before them, and they were about protecting their own position, their own power. It was anything, they were anything but graceful in their restrictions, sorry, their reactions, their responses, their behaviour. And they let their anger control them. Previously, they'd had Peter and John arrested, they'd had them flogged, they'd then let them go. They'd obviously taken all that they were going to take from these radicals who were trying to change things. Judaism was under threat. They became furious with Stephen and he became their scapegoat. 
They covered their ears, they yelled at the top of their voices, they rushed at Stephen, dragged him out of the city and stoned him to death. All the pent-up frustration, all the anger which was felt by these Orthodox Jews was unleashed and Jerusalem was no longer a safe place for any of Jesus' followers. How do you deal with your anger? Do you let it smoulder away? Do you let it build up to the point that it explodes? One of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Self-control. And I want to suggest that as opposed to modern psychologists who say that we should go out and really get into it and vent our anger, with God's help we should control it. We've been given a spirit of self-control. So control how you deal with your anger. Don't let your anger control you. But you control your anger. It's here that we're introduced to Saul. And he gave his approval to the slaughter of Stephen. And I'm sure that he felt that Stephen's death was more than justified And he threw himself into persecuting the church with systematic and hateful enthusiasm. He was extremely successful and Christians fled the city in their droves. See, Saul was a religious man. He was staunchly committed Pharisee, a Pharisee to the Pharisees. He was determined that nothing would take the place of the present form of Judaism. He was a devoutly religious man with a fervent desire to see that there was no watering down of their pious system that would take place. He had a religion, but he didn't have a relationship with the God that he purported to serve. He didn't have a personal relationship with God. He set about to destroy this new fad, this new religion, this new movement, this threatening force. And he successfully had many of the followers of the way, as they're called, thrown into prison. And he rode upon his wave of success. And I'm sure that the more successful that he was, the more justified he felt that what he was doing was right. Successfully meeting his goals drove him to pursue those goals even further. But success doesn't necessarily mean it's right. And so I wonder about us at times. Are we pursuing goals that we know may not be right? But because there's an element of success in the way that we pursue them, that justifies it and so we continue to pursue those goals. But it doesn't make it right. And so verse 1 of chapter 8. On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now I can imagine those folk, those believers, brothers and sisters of of Stephen, cautious, prudent, well-meaning believers saying something like this. 
Stephen's speech was utterly uncalled for. What did he expect when he stirred them up like that? Surely there was less inflammatory ways to defend the truth than to accuse the Sanhedrin and suggest that they are stiff-necked people always resisting the Holy Spirit. In effect, that's what he was saying. You're a stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. They'd probably go on, now the whole city's against us, we have to flee for our safety. Look at the waste of life, the waste of property as we have to leave, the waste of time. Look at the families being broken up as people are put into prison. What about the children? Who's going to take after, who's going to look after these kids? Now we've all got to flee. We've all got to leave like refugees, exiles into Judea and Samaria. Why didn't Stephen just keep his mouth shut? Why didn't he think before he spoke? And that would be our natural and human response. None of us like it when our world is disturbed. None of us like it when we're fearful that our comfort will be disturbed. And can't we go back to how it was before? But verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And so in the midst of their turmoil, in the fear of being persecuted, of being hounded down and possibly thrown into prison, wherever these believers went, they preached the gospel. And these were not the apostles, these were not the church leaders because they'd stayed back in Jerusalem. So consider their lives. Consider what was most important to them as refugees looking for a place to live, as trying to work out how to earn a crust. They shared the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus' love, the story of his sacrifice. No doubt they told people about how God was looking after them, how God was their protection and their provision. No doubt they were sharing stories of what God was doing in their lives. So what was their goal? Their goal was to share the gospel, to share their faith. And so the church was scattered. We long for and we covet our gathering together. And it is good. It is good to come together, to meet together, to worship together, to enjoy our unity. It is good to enjoy our unity. And we don't want to be scattered, for there's safety in our little huddle where we don't feel threatened, where we don't feel feel fearful. And so we want our gathering together to remain intact. And again, it's not a bad thing until 
until we don't want the Samaritans disturbing our safe cluster. And the church was scattered into Samaria. And Samaria was the area to the north of Jerusalem. It was inhabited by descendants of what was now a a new mixed race of Israelites and Assyrians following the fall of Assyria in 722 BC. So for 700 years, Israelites and Assyrians have been joining together. This, This was where pious Jews would not travel if they could avoid it. Samaritans were considered dogs, inferior, second-rate, low-grade. They were people to disdain, people to be suspicious of, sceptical of their motives, fearful of being used or abused by them. Such trash was to be avoided. Now, these refugees from Jerusalem would have much preferred to have stayed there in Jerusalem. But there's no account of them grizzling, complaining, fighting for their rights to stay in Jerusalem, seeking justice. They didn't stay in their comfortable huddle and protect their interests. They left and they preached the gospel wherever they went. Paul Harvey said this, Too many Christians are no longer fishers of men, but keepers of the aquarium. We want to keep our aquarium safe. We don't want to introduce fish that may upset the equilibrium. We want the fish to change and accept our ways before they'll be accepted into our safe world, into our aquarium. And so where is your Samaria? What people do you normally avoid? It could be your workmate. It could be a troubled friend at school. It could be your neighbour someone from a different culture to yours, a drinking culture, a gambling culture, a culture that is from a different nation, nationality. God may or may not scatter us, but if the Samaritan were to walk into our huddle, would we reach out to them and seek to love them? Would we dare to go back with them into their Samaria to bless them? Would we seek to understand them and have compassion for them? Would we seek to bind up their wounds and pay for the lodging and recovery, just as the good Samaritan did for the pious Jew? And so it's now that we're re-again introduced to Philip, And Philip, like Stephen, Philip was one of the seven who was chosen to help with the distribution of food. 
He'd been given a specific area of ministry and he was respected by the church. He was seen to be full of the Holy Spirit. His goal was not the successful distribution of food, but rather to share his faith. And after Stephen's death, Philip fled into another city where Stephen, he picked up where Stephen had left off. Philip too preached the gospel. He goes to a city in Samaria. That was his goal. So I wonder, what's your goal? A Christian research group in America took a national survey in 2001. They asked people to describe their goals in life. This is America, this is where everybody's got goals. Um, Describe your goals in life. The survey found that almost nine out of every ten adults classified themselves as a Christian. Nine out of ten. And they did so by this definition. I am personally committed to Jesus Christ and have confessed my sins and I believe that I'll go to heaven when I die because of God's love and grace through Christ. That's a strong definition of personal commitment to the Lord. However, when thinking about their goals, not one declared that their life goal was to be a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ and to participate in making Christian disciples. My guess is that for most of us, we too would not place sharing our faith as the main goal in our life. Jesus had said to his disciples just before he ascends into glory, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so Philip is among many who went into Samaria to share his faith in God. And again, these are a people group who had rejected the Jews. This was the home of those unclean half-breed who mingled with other nationalities Purebred Jews would cross to the other side of the road if meeting one along the way. And Philip knew too that they had developed their own degree of racism towards him, towards Jews. There was no love lost between Jews and Samaritans. Still, Philip went and he spoke to them about the love of God that God had for them. And when he was led by the Spirit, he sought the Lord to bring healing in physical and spiritual ways. Verses 6 to 8. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. And so there was great joy in that city, and I'm sure there was immense joy for Philip too. The power of the gospel overcomes racism. 
the power of the gospel overcomes racism and discrimination as compassion for another human being overrides all other attitudes. You see, racism or discrimination, fear of embarrassment, fear of rejection, fear of failure, that didn't stop Philip. Didn't stop Philip from going, it didn't stop Philip from sharing his faith. What is it for us? Fear of embarrassment, fear of failure, fear of rejection? Is that what holds us back? We don't want to be embarrassed, we don't want to be rejected. Or do we let racism and discrimination get in the way? Yet when we're led by the Holy Spirit, when we are being led by the Holy Spirit and when we realise afresh that it is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction, then we can move forward in confidence and in joy, trusting the results into God's hands. And of course, when God is moving, when he is really moving, then there is great joy as a result, the joy of salvation. There was great joy in that city as people were healed physically and spiritually by the Lord, as people were responding to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, although Jesus had told the disciples that they would be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, these disciples didn't have a clue And they didn't have a plan as to how to achieve this. They didn't sit down and work out their strategic plan. They didn't have certain goals for the next three, five, ten years. They hadn't come up with a strategy to implement. Nor did they have any markers to evaluate their their progress, success or failure. What did they do? They simply sought to be faithful to the Lord wherever he might lead them, whatever their circumstances. I seek to be faithful to you, Lord. They went where the Lord led them and they shared their faith along the way. And so for us, spending time in God's word, trying to gain a an understanding of God's heart for the lost. Being open to being transformed into the image of Christ, to be like Christ, spending time in prayer and asking that the Lord would grant us his heart, his compassion, his empowering to rub shoulders with those who are not in a holy place. So let us remain faithful to our Lord. Let us spend time with our Lord in his word, in prayer, responding to his prompting, trusting him as we go into our Samaria, wherever that might be. And so I want to encourage you this afternoon, encourage you throughout this week to consider where is your Samaria? And what really is your goal in life?
Seek the Lord and ask him to reveal that truth to you. Where is your Samaria? What are your goals? What are your goals in life? Let's take a moment in prayer. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we again thank you that you stepped into our world. And this was a world that had rejected you. Father, we thank you that that didn't stop you. And we are the blessed recipients of of Jesus coming into our world and him dying on the cross for us. He sacrificed everything so that we might have life. And he is our example. And so, Father, we, we ask that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit. You would draw us by your Holy Spirit to consider what are my goals in life at the moment? What is it that I am really pursuing? Am I prepared to sacrifice those things such that my, my true goal in life will be to be your witness wherever you've placed me, to trust you? And so, Lord, we, we want to thank you again that your spirit is the one that is at work, just as you are at work in our lives and drawn us to you, that you will be at work in those around us. And Father, for those of us who who have loved ones who aren't walking with you at the moment, we again commit them to you and pray that your Holy Spirit would be drawing them, drawing them to yourself and to a point where they acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Saviour. They fall at your feet, having been convicted of their, their sin and their need for forgiveness. And so, Father, we thank you as we commit ourselves and our church to you. Again, pray that you be glorified. May you continue to build your church as you said you would do. So we thank you as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.